It's completely mythical that too much protein would make someone gain weight, gain fat, have any kind of metabolic syndrome. Protein percentage of your diet is probably the single biggest lever of all when it comes to ad-lib caloric consumption, basically how much someone eats. When we're talking about higher protein, it seems like it's been a bit demonized. Well, first of all, that's it, kind of absurd. What really happens is I used to be like religiously paleo kind of out of fear because I didn't understand. I thought, wow, um, all I know is if you just eat this paleo way, you're just not going to be as sick. So you just have to follow these rules. I mean, I was drinking bulletproof coffee back in the day, just like everybody else. So we're going to play a game called the satiety game. Dr. Naaman's going to give these foods a rating out of 10. How good are they for weight loss and satiety per calorie? So are you ready? Absolutely. Okay, well, this one's going to be pretty low on the list. In terms of satiety per calorie, butter is getting a one. Now I want to get to the controversial thing, and that's carbohydrates, by the way. We're going to talk about carbohydrates. Dr. Naaman, welcome. Thank you. Great to talk to you. Thanks for having me. Well, the one thing I love about you is that you make weight loss so simple. It's all about prioritizing protein. So today, Dr. Naaman and I are going to talk about why protein is the one thing that you need to focus on, especially if your goal is weight loss and overall health, plus the foods that you need to eat. And we're going to play a bit of a game in the middle, so stay tuned. But Dr. Naaman, I wanted to first open up by asking, how did you get so interested in prioritizing protein for weight loss and health? Oh, wow. Well, I've just always been really interested in body composition, metabolic health, insulin resistance. And, you know, after researching this for 20 years, I realized that body composition and metabolic health are almost the same thing, really. And, you know, poor metabolic health is really just running out of storage space, which is mostly just over fatness. So it turns out that, you know, looking good and being healthy are almost the same thing. And so my focus has been, you know, how can you eat so that your body controls how much you're eating, you know, because this whole like eat less idea in terms of counting calories doesn't seem to really work for anyone. So my question was like, there has to be a way to uh, auto-regulate how much you're eating and uh, maintain good body composition and health. And protein, it turns out, you know, there's this protein leverage phenomenon that I don't think anybody knew about 10 or 20 years ago. And this is just very, very powerful and seems to be a major driver in terms of ad-lib caloric consumption, basically how much people eat when they eat as much as they want. And uh, as it turns out, protein percentage of your diet is probably the single biggest lever of all when it comes to ad-lib caloric consumption, basically how much someone eats. And it's almost impossible to overeat if your protein percentage is high enough. And because it's the probably the single biggest driver there is for ad-lib um, caloric consumption. Protein's kind of been my focus for, you know, at least the past several years. And that's really how I got started, just really researching what are the big drivers behind how much people eat. And uh, protein's kind of on top. And I know that you wrote a book, it's called The PE Diet. So what that stands for is protein to energy. Can you explain for us what that means? Yeah, that's really just, it's really just protein percentage. It's basically, you know, when humans eat, we're trying to get two things. We're trying to get protein and other micronutrients. And then we're trying to get energy. And it turns out that humans can use any carbon chains for energy interchangeably. You can use carbs or fats pretty much back and forth like a hybrid engine. So uh, our mitochondria basically just 
pull carbons off of, of a carbon chain, and that could either be hydrocarbon, which is fat, or carbohydrate, which is carbs, kind of interchangeably. So you can really zoom out and look at your diet in terms of protein and micronutrients, which is basically nutrition, versus energy, which is really interchangeable, uh, high energy carbon um, chains, either carbs or fats. And uh, you know, once I kind of zoomed out and looked at it from that perspective, the whole carbs versus fat thing kind of became a little bit less important, you know what I mean? So I'm a little bit less dogmatic about, oh, don't ever eat carbs or just only eat fat because it, it appears that uh, there's a lot of room to go back and forth if you're nailing the protein to energy ratio, the overall protein percentage. So that's quite interesting in terms of if you're nailing the protein ratio, getting your protein quite high, uh, it doesn't matter so much if you're having higher fat with the protein or higher carbs with the protein. Is that what you're saying? That's exactly right. So, you know, uh, we're really a dual fuel hybrid engine. And once you break carbohydrates or f fats down into these carbon chains, uh, your mitochondria really burns the carbons and the high energy carbon bonds pretty much interchangeably. There's almost no difference. You eventually break them all down into just two carbon chains and then break them apart and pull the hydrogens off. And oxidizing these two carbon chains in your mitochondria is almost identical whether they came originally from carbohydrate or fat. And so there's a lot of uh, interchangeability there. And that's why you see people on eating you know, no carbohydrate at all on these you know, pure carnivore diets doing awesome. And you see, you know, some vegans on very low fat, um, very high carb diets doing just as well. And so it, there's a lot of room to go back and forth. It, it turns out that if you look at hunter-gatherers, really the only difference between the carbohydrate fat spread of our hunter-gatherer ancestors was what latitude you were at. The closer you are to the equator, the higher the ratio of carbs versus fat. The farther you are from the equator, the more fat and less carbs. And it really just comes down to, you know, where where your ancestors came from in terms of latitude and sun exposure, whether they eat more animals and more fat or more carbs and more plants. And uh, the, you can really switch back and forth uh, with a lot of uh, freedom, which is great. That's, I think, why humans are have been successful because we can live almost anywhere eating almost anything. And it's been really great for our success as a species. It's been really bad for confusing the hell out of everybody because nobody knows what to eat because it turns out you can survive on almost anything. Exactly. And I think that for many of my viewers, um, you're either carnivore, you're keto, you're, you're pretty much low carb. So I think this conversation is going to be quite interesting. And we're going to talk about later the role of carbs for overall health and weight loss, because there is a lot of confusion around, okay, we know that we should be eating protein. Then what should we be eating? The fat? or the carbs, or is it both? So we're going to talk about that a little bit later. But circling back to protein, you're talking about a high amount of protein. In your opinion, is it to do with a percentage of energy or calories? Is there a number that we should be um, aiming for? Because many people, they want to know that number. Well, you can't really look at just percentage because uh that doesn't account for energy expenditure. So if I'm training for an ultra marathon and I'm you know, running 50 miles a day and I'm burning 10,000 extra calories of just pure energy, right? Carbs, fats, just drinking Gatorade, whatever. Um, <clears throat> my protein percent might be 10, you know, 10%, uh, but I'm still gonna be super lean because I'm just burning so many calories. So percentage is a little bit weird versus someone who's completely sedentary and never moves at all. And they might eat, you know, 40% protein, and just to 
maintain weight stability because they're burning almost no energy calories. So percentage is not necessarily the best way to look at it. I really like to look at absolute grams of protein. And of course, you know, I'm a big fan of uh, one gram per pound of ideal body weight, you know, 2.2 grams per kilo of absolute ideal body weight if you were just completely lean and um, on stage for a bodybuilding show or something like that, or whatever you weighed when you were 18 or that kind of thing. So I do like these um, grams and absolute protein in terms of your ideal body weight, usually based on your height. But percentage is, is okay to look at for the average person who's just medium active or, you know, it gets radically skewed when you go uh, to the extremes of the exercise, as I pointed out. But for your average person who has an average activity level, um, I do like, you know, 30% protein, I think it would be an amazing maintenance diet for someone to just be very lean, have great body composition, lots of lean mass, less fat mass, plenty of storage space in their fat cells so they're very insulin sensitive and have room to dispose of incoming energy macronutrients. And so, you know, right now the standard American diets may be, you know, 12 to 16% protein. Um, you get people up to 30%, you pretty much cure every type two diabetic or, you know, pre-diabetic. And uh, you look at 40% uh, protein, that's where all your permalene bodybuilders are hanging out. And they're just always, you know, super thin. So there, there is this percentage that you can kind of look at for the medium active person, but it gets completely blown out of the water um, when you look at the extremes of activity. So it's quite interesting. Why is it that I guess in the keto or the carnivore space, when we're talking about higher protein, it seems like it's been a bit demonized that there is a trend going around, which is moderate protein and increase your fat, especially if you want to heal insulin resistance and then lose weight. Where do you think that's come from? Well, first of all, it, that's kind of absurd. Um, what really happens is as you get to higher and higher protein percentages, you're just starving out of your mind at all times. Like no one can live on 50% protein forever. Well, you, we actually do that to lab animals. You put lab rats and mice on a 50% protein diet and they're just the leanest, most ripped and jacked mice and rats you've ever seen. So you can, you can have a mammal live on a 50% protein diet, but they're super hungry all the time. Uh, they just absolutely can't convert that protein into fat. It's so energetically expensive to create fat out of protein that it almost doesn't happen, which is why in all your protein overfeeding studies, people don't gain fat, and which is why these 50% protein lab rodents on ad-lib diet, no matter what, they're just not getting fatter. So it, it's completely mythical that too much protein would make someone basically gain weight, gain fat, have any kind of metabolic syndrome. Uh, that's just completely absurd. So I don't know where it came from. Now, I do know that, that if your protein percent gets too high, you're just completely hungry all the time and you absolutely can't live on these super high protein diets, which is what rabbit starvation is. If, you, if you're a hunter-gatherer and it's the middle of winter and all you have is you know deer and rabbits, these animals themselves are starving for energy and they're extremely lean and it's just pure protein. And you're basically going to starve to death or at least feel like you're starving on these super high protein percents. So, so they're not good, but to say that they would ever make someone gain weight or be fatter or more insulin resistant or have more metabolic syndrome is completely absurd. There's just absolutely 
nothing to support that. So conversely then, if you're having moderate protein or even lower protein and the higher fat, do you think in any way that might harm our health in the long term? So there, <clears throat> there's all this theoretical um, protein restriction and calorie restriction stuff out there, you know, your Walter Longos are like, maybe if you restrict calories and restrict protein, you might live a, live a little bit longer. And there is some evidence in smaller organisms, um, in your worms and your flies and your yeast, if you do restrict calories and restrict protein, you do see them living longer, but they're in a very controlled, protective environment where they're not having a sarcopenia and falling and breaking a hip like your you know, elderly people are doing. What we know in reality is that as you get older, if you have frailty and sarcopenia and osteopenia and osteoporosis and not enough bone and muscle, uh, your health span gets really, really short and your quality of life goes way down. And then your risk of a uh, fragility fracture or fall or dying related to something like that, um, it just goes up uh, extremely. So. I have these huge concerns about frailty and sarcopenia and osteoporosis, which are uh, very, very real. We see them all the time, definitely driven by low protein diets. So you've got this mountain of real world evidence. I see it every day in the clinic, sarcopenia, frailty, falling, fractures, osteoporosis, um, versus this possible tiny theoretical protein restriction longevity hack that has never been demonstrated in higher organisms. And there's zero evidence to support that in humans. And it's just completely theoretical. So I, I have a problem with telling people, oh, restrict your protein and you'll live longer. This is just not evidence-based. And to be honest, I'm a little bit tired of looking at mechanisms and I'm much more interested in outcomes. Like all I really care about now is outcomes. Show me actual outcomes in randomized human controlled studies and then I'll be interested. And like, yeah, right now it's just crickets. So I think that's purely mythical at this point. I absolutely love that you said that because I used to follow a higher fat diet and it's so funny because it, it worked. It worked for a period of time, but then I noticed I was getting fat around the midsection. I noticed that I was feeling weaker. And I understand that from your book, you talk about having a personal fat threshold that everybody has, which is a very interesting topic. I was thinking, wow, this is amazing, purely amazing. What does that mean, a personal fat threshold? Well, right, okay, personal fat threshold. I did not come up with this. This is from Professor Roy Taylor, who's a physician over in the UK doing a lot of research, looking at cross-sectional imaging in diabetics and pre-diabetics. He's basically doing MRI scans of the abdominal fat and livers of people on the diabetes spectrum. And it turns out that basically you have a certain number of fat cells in your body. And you have subcutaneous fat, which is very harmless, and uh, storing you know, fat there doesn't seem to cause any problems at all. But you have a finite number of these fat cells, and all of your fat cells, unbeknownst to you, have a maximum diameter that they can achieve, and then they cannot get bigger. So you know, your fat cells could maybe go from 20 microns up to 200 microns, and if you look at lean non-diabetic people, their fat cells are maybe 60 microns in diameter on average, and your diabetics are like 120 microns in diameter on average. And the way that works is your fat cells expand until they can't expand anymore. Then if you're genetically able to manufacture more fat cells, like sprout new 
fat cells from stem cells, you'll do that. But everyone's very, very limited on how many new fat cells they can grow genetically, just like people are limited as to how many new muscle cells they can grow genetically. There's a the rigid ceiling how muscular anyone can get based on genetic limitations, and there's a rigid ceiling on how many new fat cells you can make based on genetic li limitations. And so you store fat subcutaneously, fat cells expand, you sprout new ones if you can up until your limit. Then when you run out of storage space there, because it's very finite, you have to start storing fat in your abdominal area. That's your visceral fat, which is bad. And the reason it's bad is because you're running out of storage. You have, it takes more insulin to convince those cells to take up energy. And uh, once you run out of visceral fat, now you have to store fat anywhere you can, your liver, your pancreas, your organs, your, you're just shoving fat in little corners. And at this point, you're super insulin resistant because all the energy in your bloodstream, your fat, maybe even your glucose, has no place to go because all your cells are refusing it. So you just see people getting more and more insulin resistant as they hit the upper end of their personal fat threshold. Basically, if you ran out of places to store fat, the fat's just gonna circulate in your bloodstream because it has no place to go, that's triglycerides. Your pancreas produces insulin because it's trying to clear fuels out of the bloodstream. That's what insulin in the pancreas is doing. Uh, but it, it, it can't go anywhere, so your pancreas just pumps out more and more and more insulin that your cells just continue to ignore because they don't want any more energy because they're already full. And there you have it, insulin resistance. And then, of course, end-stage overfatness and insulin resistance is type 2 diabetes. And by the time your blood sugar goes up, you really have no fat anywhere. And what Professor Roy Taylor found is that 100% of type 2 diabetics have fatty liver. You cannot have diabetes until your liver is maximally filled with fat. And so these, these diabetics would have fatty liver, high blood sugar, and he would put them on just a starvation diet for you know eight weeks or something. And the first fat to leave their body would be from their liver. It's like last in, first out, right? You see so you store fat subcutaneous, then visceral, then in your organs. And when you starve yourself, the first thing to go is the liver fat. And that's why you can cure someone's diabetes in just a few weeks of either not eating, fasting, bariatric surgery, which is basically not eating, uh, you know, super low calorie diet, whether it's carbs, fats, or anything else. So it's this like concept of personal fat threshold with the very last thing being shoving fat in your liver. And then the first thing to go when you're under eating calories is removing that liver fat, and then your diabetes is gone. And that's kind of uh, how personal fat threshold works. And it's just been really elegantly illustrated by Professor Roy Taylor with all these um, diabetics, MRI scans of the liver, looking at liver fat. And he has all these dramatic images of like before the starvation diet and after the eight weeks of starvation diet. And you have like your liver is full of fat and then it's just completely empty. And you're diabetic with the full uh, liver fat and you're non-diabetic without. And it really explains a lot, which is, you know, you hear people say, oh, you can cure diabetes um, in a few weeks of a carnivore diet or without even losing any weight, really. And that's actually true because the second you're eating less calories, that liver fat is being burned up and goes away. And you can have radical improvements in hemoglobin A1C and blood sugar and triglycerides and all these things that your fatty liver markers within just weeks of eating less calories. And you could do that with a vegan diet. You could do that with a carnivore diet. You could do that with just starving yourself or not eating. 
And that's why you see all these success in all these camps. You're Dr. Fung fasting people, boom, diabetes cured in a few weeks. Your bariatric surgery, boom, your diabetes is gone. You're total vegans, plants only, gone. You know, fruititarian, sure. You, you can do any of these and you'll just immediately uh, lower your fat, get, get down from the uh, completely fulfilled personal fat threshold and have metabolic improvements and health improvements and diabetes improvements. And of course, almost every chronic disease scales up and down with insulin resistance. You can look at symptom scores of every chronic disease and it's almost linear with how insulin resistant you are. So the second you lower your over fatness from maximally filled out your personal fat threshold, every disease you can name gets better. Your rheumatoid arthritis, your psoriasis, your um, eczema. And that's why all you get these magic cures of any, literally any freaking thing you can name, you can magically cure with a low calorie diet from fasting, uh, carnivore, vegan, fruititarian, you name it. And that's kind of the magic of personal fat threshold. And that's how body composition and metabolic health are really the same thing. Um, sorry, that was a really long-winded. No, it totally makes sense because you're talking about the different diets and that's why I'd like to open up the conversation in terms of there's no one diet for each person that they have to stick to. That's my belief. Absolutely. You know, I choose a carnival lifestyle because it works for myself with my history, sugar addiction, eating disorders, all the rest of it, gut issues. You were talking about, you know, to achieve overall health and metabolic flexibility, veganism is going to work. Having just a fruit diet is going to work. Keto, paleo, carnivore. So the question I think everybody is interested in is, what is a diet that's going to, what should they follow? What should they eat? Right, right. So, you know, basically, and I've learned this the hard way. I've been every diet religion from vegetarian, vegan, um, paleo, carnivore, keto, you name it. I've done it. Um, and what I've realized now is you have a lot of flexibility. Any diet that allows you to have a very high nutrient density and a very low calorie density that allows you to eat fewer calories to be thinner uh, to improve this personal fat threshold situation and insulin resistance, any of those is going to produce health. And uh, that's really good news because you can kind of do whatever you want or mix and match and you have lots of different options um and it, it's very liberating it's very freeing i used to be like religiously paleo kind of out of fear because i didn't understand i thought wow um all i know is if you just eat this paleo way you're just not going to be as sick so you just have to follow these rules and but now that i understand it i realize okay i can actually eat lentils i don't have to be terrified um you know what i mean and uh, I'm still going to be able to be successful because I'm going to have a high satiety per calorie from this food. I'm going to have a high nutrient density. I'm gonna have a low energy density. Um, it's not really possible to overeat on this food. And then once you really understand what drives overeating and over fatness and insulin resistance, which is all of your diseases, and then what drives eating uh, appropriate amount of calories and having basically foods with high satiety per calorie, you automatically don't overeat calories and don't exceed your personal fat threshold. So the, the real answer is finding something you can sustain long-term. You have to enjoy it. You have to be able to sustain it long-term. 
And the problem with all of these extreme diets, like you are gonna be successful in the extremes, but you're not gonna do it forever. Like, you know, 20 years from now, everyone's gonna look back on their carnivore phase and their eating butter phase, and they're kind of, it's gonna be cringeworthy, I guarantee it. I want you to, you know, look back, 20, write this down, put it in a time capsule, name and set in 20 years, I'm gonna be like slightly embarrassed about my pure butter diet or whatever, insert any extreme diet here. And that's true, like you're just not gonna do that forever. and. So everyone ends up kind of regressing to the mean, which means you, you go from these extreme guardrails sort of a little bit back towards the middle. And so it's helpful to know what the general properties are of all of these foods and all of these macros so that you, when you do kind of go back to something that's more mainstream and in the middle and sustainable, um, you still know how to be successful. And, and honestly, for me, it's really all coalesced into satiety per calorie, which means that you're keeping your protein percent high, you're keeping your nutrient density high, you're keeping your carbohydrate and fat energy density low, which is mostly from avoiding refined carbs and refined fats like sugar and oil. And that allows you to auto-regulate how many calories you're eating. You know what I'm saying? If you're eating a food with low satiety per calorie, you're gonna automatically overeat calories. And that would be like, high energy density carbs and fats mixed together, which is super hedonic and tasty and very low in protein and very low in fiber and low in nutrient density. That's like your cookies and your Pop-Tarts and your candy bars and your, your, your cakes and your cookies and your pies and your muffins and your crackers. And everyone knows these foods, right? This is carb and fat together. Usually they're both refined, very high energy density, very low protein, very low fiber, super tasty, very hedonic. You're gonna overeat the hell out of them. You're gonna gain a trillion pounds. You're gonna be at the top of your personal fat threshold and then you're gonna be like pre-diabetic and diabetic and have all these problems. But if you eat things that have less refined carbs and less refined fats and higher protein percent and higher fiber and higher water and higher micronutrients and all these things that provide satiety with lower calories, which is basically carbs and fats, then you're going to not overeat calories. You're gonna be able to automatically feel full and eat to satiety and not overeat and uh, be successful even if you're eating you know, non-paleo foods, God forbid, like legumes or actual plant foods like you know every human has eaten since ever you know or carbohydrate you know god forbid which like every human eats so this is like totally what you know normal so once you understand what drives these uh over and under eating phenomenon you can kind of be like a little bit less afraid of foods you don't have to be like i can't eat plants because i'm a i'm such a wuss i'm afraid to eat lettuce you know what i mean I, you don't really want to be that fear-based. You don't want to be like religiously paleo and like if, oh, if I eat a potato, I'm, it's a nightshade and then I'm just gonna, it's gonna be instantly bad somehow. And then you can kind of like, you know, eat a little more in a broader fashion, a little more sustainable, not quite as extreme. You're not gonna cringe quite as hard 20 years from now when you look back on it. It's just not gonna be quite as embarrassing. It's funny that you um, said the cringe uh, because, you know, I was eating a stick of butter a day. I don't know if you've seen my videos, but I was doing that because, you know, I thought that that was good for my health and it was really good. Like I couldn't eat it at the start and I got really used to it and it actually became very addictive to the point that, um, you know, I was getting eczema on my arms. I was, because I think that when you overdo something, it's not so good. I do love what you say, which is understanding the concept 
understanding what you're trying to achieve, which is satiety per calorie, nutrient density. If you get those two things correct, you're going to be feeding your brain, your body, and your gut, and you're going to live longer and be healthier. And for many people, I think watching this, they might say, oh, does that mean I shouldn't do carnival? Does that mean I shouldn't do keto? I think the bigger picture is to get away from labels, understand the idea of what we're trying to do, because I know what people are thinking. I don't want people in in, in the comments to say, oh, so she's going to stop carnival. She's going to stop keto or et cetera, et cetera. I think the idea is to understand Dr. Naaman is talking about nutrients, is talking about feeding your body with protein and then choosing your carbs and fats as a secondary measure. Is that kind of right? That, that's exactly right, right. Yeah, so like, you know, the reason carnivore is such an instant win is because the just right off the bat, you've got super high protein percentage, way higher than most plant foods. You've got a super high um, nutrient density. You've got, um, you know, a, a medium energy density. So it's like just a lot of instant wins. And you're, of course, not getting anything hedonic because you never have carbs and fats combined together. So there, there are all these instant wins. But then... You can also do a carnivore diet, you know, in a not great fashion, like basically refined fats is the main problem I see. Because if you just, if you, if, if I took two identical diets and fed them to two identical people, but just poured butter all over one, you will automatically overeat calories compared to the other one by just pouring a refined fat all over your food. We do this in animal studies all the time. If you want to fatten any lab animal, you can literally just pour oil onto their food and they will just automatically get fatter. Uh, and it does not have to be oil. It can be um, any kind of fat. So so I, I think like, okay, you understand what the awesomeness about carnivore is. It's like a ridiculously high protein percent, super high nutrient density. You're avoiding the hedonic combination of high energy density carbs and fats together. All these instant wins, check, check, check. But then you could actually do it wrong by just pouring butter on everything or by just buying animals who have been artificially fattened and then specifically picking the fattest parts of those animals to eat. Like if you just ate pork belly from conventionally fattened pigs, you know, eating just nothing but um, basically, you know, soybean oil and you know, the, the, the things that they're feeding these animals to fatten them up is not ideal. And when you eat an artificially fattened animal and specifically the fattest part of it or refine that fat, it's really not going to be optimal for health. It's just not, it's, you know, I, I don't want to say everything has to be paleo, but even if you look at it through an evolutionary lens, it does not make a lot of sense to just eat butter. Thank you for saying that because anything too extreme with the fat and the carbs look where it ends up. Right, right, right. And I'm not like throwing anybody under the bus in particular. I mean, I was drinking Bulletproof coffee back in the day, just like everybody else. Come on. I was like, you know, uh, but I, I, I do think that um, you can, you can definitely, once you understand the mechanisms, it's easier to parse out what the good and bad parts are of all these different diet religions. You know, paleo is awesome because you get automatically higher nutrient density, lower energy density. Uh, carnivore is awesome because the protein percent is just absurdly high instantly. Love it. Vegan diets, okay, I can't say as many good things about <laughs> pure veganism, but uh, there are plenty of uh, vegans out there who are extremely healthy if they're prioritizing the hell out of protein and uh, if they're not eating a junk food 
diet. And you have some instant wins there because the energy density is always very low and people automatically just eat less. And so there are good and bad things about all these diet religions. And if you just understand what the drivers of them are, you can kind of mix and match and do whatever you want and be somewhere in between. And you just don't have to be as extreme. And I think that's really good for long-term sustainability, honestly. Absolutely. I love your well-balanced approach and understanding the concept rather than a label. Um, And that goes into understanding different foods. So we're going to play a game called the satiety game. I have some foods here that I'm going to show Dr. Naaman, and we're going to get his thoughts. Dr. Naaman is going to give these foods a rating out of 10. How good are they for weight loss and satiety per calorie? So are you ready, Dr. Naaman? Absolutely. Ribeye. Okay, ribeye. It's like a 6 out of 10 on satiety score. Uh, I mean, I love ribeye. This is probably the only food on earth that I would ever consider as a, for a mono diet. Like if I could only eat one thing and just live on it for life, ribeye would be it. Ribeye is typically 30% protein, 70% fat. It's uh, one of the fattier cuts of meat, and you kind of need that if you're just going to live off of a meat source because anything else would be too lean and you'd be super hungry all the time. Uh, but it is, a, because it's fattier, you can live off of it as a mono diet, which is nice, but it's not the greatest food for just cutting or getting lean. None of your bodybuilders are really, you know, getting super ripped and jacked on ribeye because it's just a little bit too fatty. They're usually eating sirloin or something, you know, filet or something a little bit leaner. And that's why it's getting about a six out of 10 on satiety per calorie. Not that I, I love ribeye, it's amazing, but, uh, but it's just, it's, you know, it's like a upper middle. It's, it's good. So if your goal is weight loss, ribeyes are great, but maybe I'd like to see your thoughts about... Chicken breast. Now I eat a absolute ridiculous amount of chicken breast. This is probably, you know, one of my bigger protein sources. And there's a lot of things to like about chicken breast. So first of all, if you're uh, let's say you're afraid of seed oils for whatever reason, and you're uh, you've gone down the rabbit hole of you know mechanistically seed oils are bad, and they feed uh, chickens you know foods that make them produce more PUFA fat, and you're worried about let's say you're worried about the fat profile of a um, conventionally raised chicken. Well, you don't have to worry about that with chicken breast because there's no fat in there. It's just protein. So like in terms of just a protein source, it's amazing. Now it's way too lean to live off of. If you tried to live off of chicken breast, you would just be starving out of your mind. You would get incredibly ripped and jacked. And all of your bodybuilders and bikini models are eating a hell of a lot of chicken breast. But you almost have to add some more fat to it just to be alive if that's all you're eating, which is okay because typically when you cook and produce a protein, you're going to add fat to it. You're going to cook it in some sort of oil. You're going to add some sort of sauce. You're adding fat to it. So I eat a ton of chicken breast, and what I usually do is prepare it in a way that there's a little bit more either fat or carbohydrate added to it. And, uh, but I can dial that up or down to gain or lose weight. So I love chicken breast. It's like a blank pal- uh, blank canvas of protein that you can just add whatever you want to it. Extremely uh, good protein source. It doesn't have as many micronutrients as your ribeye, but if you're looking just for a higher protein percentage, which honestly most people should be, uh, chicken breast is solid. It's gonna get about a 7.5 out of 10 on the satiety per calorie scale for me. Okay. So I think this one's going to be very interesting. 
bacon, right, bacon. Now, bacon is, it's actually a much higher protein percentage than the standard American diet, but it's a really high energy density food. It's, there's a lot of fat there. Most people can go on a bacon mono diet from a standard American diet and actually have a little bit of success. You'll have a little bit of weight loss. You'll have a little bit of health improvement because, you know, the standard American diet gets like a 2.5 on the satiety scale. And bacon's like a three. I'm giving bacon a three. And it's actually a tiny microscopic upgrade from the standard American diet but nobody's gonna get all the way to their health and body competition goals on a mono diet of bacon. And let's, let's zoom out and face reality, which is bacon is taking an artificially fattened animal and then selecting the fattest part of that animal and eating it. And you're just not gonna be optimized when you do that. It's just not, not happening. So I love bacon, bacon's tasty and delicious. I do eat bacon but not a lot of bacon. I'm ratioing that. I mean, more chicken breasts and less bacon. So I'm giving bacon a three. So bacon as a side or as a treat, not something that you'd have for breakfast as a whole plate of bacon. Perhaps you could have something like this. Right, right. Um, ground beef. Now ground beef, it's very important to recognize the fat percentage of ground beef is so enormous that you can have like completely different scores, like just absolutely absurdly different. Now, um, you can buy ground beef that's 90% lean, 93% lean, 95% lean. Uh, if you get 93% lean ground beef, I mean, it's rivaling ground bison. Uh, it's super, super high protein percent. You're, you're talking, you know, maybe 60% protein. You could just get as lean as you wanted on this really really low fat percentage ground beef. But then if you look at, you know, super cheap ground beef, you're 80, 20, God forbid, if you look at the very cheapest ground beef, you're 70, 30, this is actually pretty terrible. Like nobody can lose weight on this. And so when people just say ground beef, what they don't realize is you literally have a doubling order of magnitude on the satiety per calorie going from the lowest to the highest. That's huge. That's a big deal. So you can't, you cannot just say ground beef. It's, it's terribly confusing. And I hate the fact that it is this way, but you really have to specify the fat percentage. And the reality is that the, the, the leaner it is, the more expensive it is in a straight line. You're, the fattier it is, the cheaper it is. That's because fat is cheap. Protein is expensive. Protein is the most expensive macro by a mile. The price is completely driven by how much protein is in it. The fat is so cheap, it's almost free. When you dilute your meat with a bunch of fat, it's dirt cheap. So your super cheap ground beef is a 70-30. I don't really recommend it. If you look at something like a hot dog, it gets even worse. Look at the macros on your hot dog. You might have uh, 10 grams of protein and 30 grams of fat or something. Like I've seen hot dogs that are 20% protein, 15% protein. Um, there are hot dogs that have lower protein percentage than the standard American diet. And that really screws up someone who's just like, oh, I'm just gonna be carnivore. Hot dogs are carnivore, I'll just eat hot dogs. Uh, what? You're literally gonna die. If you just eat the fattiest, cheapest hot dogs only, you're gonna be the unhealthiest person ever. That's why processed meat is, a, uh, in epidemiological studies, processed meat is, you know, it's a carcinogen. It's uh, um, extremely unhealthy. It's associated with all this bad stuff. 
that's because processed meat has a crap ton of fat in it to make it cheaper and it's super protein diluted and that's horrible for study per calorie and you're going to eat overeat and it's bad. And that's kind of, it's things like that that are major gotchas with just, oh, as long as I'm carnivore, I'm fine. I'll just eat all the processed meat I want. I'll just eat the cheapest, highest fat sausage and the cheapest, highest fat hot dogs and the cheapest ground beef. And you're just not gonna get where you wanna be. So if the percentage starts with a nine, I'm all over it. 90% lean ground beef, love it. 93% ground beef, love it even more. 95% if you can get it. So if you're talking about a, like a 93% ground beef, I'm going to give that, you know, a solid 7.5. Okay, well, this one's going to be pretty low on the list. Butter, right, right, right. Butter, in terms of satiety per calorie, butter is getting a 1. There are days where I'd give it a 0, but it's I'm going to give it a 1. Um, oil would technically get a 0. Butter is a little bit lower energy density than oil. And so it's like marginally microscopically better, but it's quite horrible. And the thing is, it, it, people don't understand. Everyone's like, what? Butter gives me a sh crap ton of satiety. When I eat butter, I have so much satiety. And I'm like, yeah, and it had a trillion calories. Like you have no idea. And so yeah, butter is extremely satiating. Eating a ton of calories is extremely satiating. I can eat a whole pizza. I have a lot of satiety. I can eat a whole stick of butter, I have some satiety. The satiety per calorie, however, was horrible. So I'm giving butter a one out of 10 on satiety per calorie, per calorie people. <laughs> and it's not my favorite. I don't eat a lot of butter. I, you know, cook with a little bit of it, but um, I'm not trying to intentionally eat more because the nutrient density is actually terrible. And I just, I just don't like, I'm staying away from refined carbs or refined fats. So I think butter is another way where people get into trouble on carnivore diets. Now, if you're eating just like your chicken breast, which is so lean that you have to add fat to it, okay, now it's time to cook it in a little bit more butter. And then once you kind of understand that, you can ratio those two appropriately, you know what I mean? But what you don't want is just the fattiest ribeye or ground beef you can get and then adding butter to that because now you're really going downhill fast. And it's interesting that these foods that, that I'm showing you, they have fat in it. Like say, for example, salmon. So salmon has a good amount of protein. Maybe it's not as high on your scale, but it has fat in it. So you don't necessarily have to add a lot of fat. Well, salmon, okay. I, I, I just went off on like how ground beef is radically different. Uh, wild versus farm salmon, radical difference. You've got a, at least a 2x difference in the fat content. So wild salmon is extraordinarily lean and you'll probably die of uh, insufficient calories if you tried to just live on that. Farm salmon though has twice as much fat, you could probably, well, you'd live a lot longer just eating farm salmon, it's a way higher fat. So these are two radically different um, products. I'm giving wild salmon like an 8.5 on the out of 10 on the satiety scale. And I'm giving the farm salmon, it's solid. I mean, but it's getting like a seven. That's not bad. I like yeah, salmon. Not bad. Both really, both very worth eating. This one, I think you're gonna find. Pork rinds, okay, so pretty good protein percent, kind of similar to, you know, ribeye. Uh, about 30% protein. Uh, the problem is it's completely dehydrated. So it's very, very light. Uh, there are a couple things driving 
short-term satiety in humans, that's like satiation or intramural satiety, like what makes you stop eating when you're having an eating episode. And one of them is weight and volume in your stomach. So humans eat until they eat about three or four, three to five pounds of food a day. You're gonna eat like four pounds of food, basically. If you're just eating heads of lettuce, you're gonna hit that weight really fast. So like, it, you know, if, let's say you just ate carrots. In order to get 2,600 calories from carrots, you have to eat 18 pounds of carrots. That is a lot of carrots. That's why no one's getting fat on carrots. No one's overeating calories from carrots. And you get an absurd amount of weight and volume from them. Pork rinds weigh almost nothing. It's so light, it's so dehydrated, all that there's no fiber, there's no water. It's so evaporated and dehydrated that you eat the whole bag of pork rinds and it's, you know, maybe a pound and then that's like a thousand calories. So um, the problem with pork rinds is the dehydrated nature and the fact that they just aren't giving you the weight and volume in your stomach that you would need for intramural satiation or, you know, short-term satiety. So you are going to overeat calories from pork rinds, which is why none of your bikini models on Instagram are saying, look, I have pork rinds every morning for show prep because it's so high in satiety per calorie. Yeah, said no one ever. The other problem is we know carbs and fats together are a major hedonic driver, right? That's your cookies and your donuts and your candy bars. Adding salt to fat is a massive hedonic driver. That is why people overeat pepperoni and cheese and pork rinds, for example. You can take a lab animal you can take lab rats and mice and just add salt to fat and they'll eat way more of it. They will actually, rats and mice will overeat and get fat on things like salami and um, processed meat and cheese and pork rinds. And so with pork rinds, you've got this basically high energy density fat with salt added, which is hedonic. And then you've got like no weight and volume because all the water's gone. And it's just not the greatest. Even though the protein percent's high, people are like, oh, look at the, how high the protein percent is. Naaman's gonna love pork rinds. And that's a little bit why I've moved from my protein over-focus or monofocus to a little bit more of a broader view where, okay, there are some lower protein percent foods that are also very successful for satiety per calorie based on other factors, nutritional density or water or fiber or low energy density or that kind of thing. So yeah, pork rinds, I'm giving them like a three. Okay, good. I agree. I don't like, I mean, I could just eat it like bags and bags of pork rinds, even dehydrated, shouldn't say the brand name, but dehydrated, how do you say beef chips? You just get some beef and then you dehydrate it. That doesn't become food anymore. That becomes like air. It's like popcorn and you don't get full. So when you want to achieve weight loss or if you want to get metabolic, metabolically healthy, you need to consume less energy somehow and you need to feed your body with nutrients. So if you're, not, if, if you're taking away all the nutrients and the water and everything to make you feel full, it's pretty hard to lose weight. That's right. There's also uh, oral processing time, like how much you have to chew something. And literally, the harder the surface of a food is and the more you have to chew it, the less people eat of it. Full stop, period, all the time. And so that's why if you're like drinking a milkshake where you just suck it down, uh, the satiety per calorie is horrible. But then back to your 18 pounds of carrots giving you, you know, 
your day supply of calories. You also have to chew that so much that you're just really done eating after a while. And you kind of don't get that with pork rinds. So um, the amount of chewing, surface hardness, also a factor, which is why some of these plant foods are better than you would think. Just because you have to chew them so much, you give up. It's like celery. I have a question about plant foods after our game because I think people are going to be curious around, ooh, plants. Plants are bad for us. Okay. Um, <laughs> eggs. Eggs. Love eggs. So eggs are awesome. This is, this is another like mono diet food. And again, eggs are basically equal grams of protein and fat. They're about 30, 35% protein. Super amazing. Uh, a little bit lower energy density too because there's some water in there. A lot of micronutrients. Absolutely love eggs. I'm giving eggs a seven out of 10 on satiety per calorie. Eggs are solid. These are really good. Okay, next one is sardines. Sardines. Sardines are amazing. Okay, so fish in general, it just has an absurdly high satiety per calorie, right? Um, you are just going to eat less fish. This is um, it's evidence-based. We have studies showing that of the proteins, fish is the ones that uh, is one of the proteins that people just automatically eat the least of. It has one of the highest satiety per calorie of any animal food. And that's why like, you know, Sean Baker, he's trying to lean out. He's eating, you know, ribeye and meat and then some salmon. He's adding fish to that. He's getting his protein percent higher. He's eating more fish and this is intentional and this is very smart and this will result in less caloric consumption. This will give you higher study per calorie. So sardines happen to be uh, spectacular fish in terms of nutrient density. R really, really high nutrient density, really high satiety per calorie. I mean, uh, with sardines, you're basically getting into the nine range. I am going to caveat that a little, that if you're packing them in a bunch of oil and eating all that oil, you're going to drop them down to about a seven. It's kind of like the wild caught versus the um, farm salmon issue again. So if you, if they're just like, I, I get sardines that are smoked and packed in water and, uh, absolutely love those. And if you are using a product like that, I'm going to give those a nine. Oh yes. Some people don't love sardines, but I grow to love them because my brain just switches on after eating them. I don't know what happens, but, um, another interesting food is Fruit, fruit. Now, <clears throat> fruit is a little bit on a spectrum. You have some fruit that has absurdly high fiber and water and like berries. Berries are, you know, my favorite fruit. These are an amazing fruit. You, uh, it's like you could eat 20 cups of strawberries and that's like uh, 150 net grams of carbs. That's like, that's like, you know, I could, my, the amount of carbs I eat a day, that would give me like, several pounds of strawberries or raspberries are even slightly better. So you can eat pounds of these berries and have hardly any calories, absurdly high satiety per calorie um, for a plant food. Absolutely love berries. Other fruits, not quite as good, but um, the fruits that are high in fiber and low in net carbs are amazing. So I'm going to give your, like your raspberries and your blackberries a a six out of 10 on satiety scale. They're never gonna be that, you know, like they're never gonna get higher than that because the protein percent is always low. Fruit basically usually has five, 6% protein, which is, you know, but it's a pretty good side dish if you have to eat um, some carbohydrate with your 
basically, if you're, if you're choosing a really lean protein, you have to add more energy to it, either carbs or fats interchangeably. And if you're deciding to eat some carbs, which I think is a good idea, um, because humans have a specific appetite for carbohydrate, and if you just try to deny that all the time, you're always going to have this weird carbohydrate hunger. So, you know, you're going to want to eat some carbohydrate. Uh, fruit is an amazing choice. Berries are my favorite. Raspberries are getting like a 6 out of 10. So were there any other foods from a satiety point of view that are really high in protein that people should be focusing on? if they want to lose weight and get healthy. Oh, uh, are we talking in the, just uh, in the carnivore world or plants as well? Not plants yet. Let's 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 get into plants in a second because I know people watching will be like, "Oh, plants and carbs. We shouldn't be eating that." But let's discuss that in a second. Uh, just more animal-based foods. Got it. Got it. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. So, first of all, fermented dairy. That's cottage cheese, Greek yogurt, these uh, have a spectacular satiety per calorie. So I absolutely love fermented dairy that's low carb and low fat. I buy, you know, like a Greek yogurt or a cottage cheese, uh, uh, maybe even the low fat version, and you're just talking, it's just pure protein. So I, I eat the hell out of low carb and low fat fermented dairy. I, I buy low fat cheese, low fat Greek yogurt, low fat cottage cheese, these are like a protein supplement. It, you can add them to all sorts of things. Uh, it's instant win for most people. And uh, you, you look at your, like your low carb and low fat Greek yogurt, right? You buy your two pound vat of, you know, uh, Oikos triple zero or light and fit or any of these uh, low carb and low fat um, fitness Greek yogurt things. You can eat this entire two pound vat of um, light and fit Greek yogurt, and it's, you know, 90 grams of protein and like only 400 calories. It's just absurdly low. Uh, if you ate the whole thing, your, your satiety is off the charts and it's like the calories are so low. And I have a lot of patients who late at night, they're still hungry and, you know, they end up in their pantry at like 10 PM and they're eating nuts and crackers or anything they can find. And I'm like, no, just binge this entire bucket of two pounds of, you know, low carb, low fat, Greek yogurt. You're, you're, you're so full, you can't even move. It's like, a, it's like a good binge eating strategy. And then the nutritional density is amazing. The protein percent is amazing. The energy density is super low. I mean, it's below one kcal per gram. It's like so great for satiety per calorie. And I'm giving something like that, you know, probably at least a 7.5 out of 10, um, maybe eight out of 10 for a low fat cottage cheese, which is even higher. So these are amazing. Your fermented low carbon, low fat dairy products. Other things that are good, uh, whey powder. Uh, I know it's, you know, uh, when you drink food, you don't get as much satiety as when you eat it for sure. But the convenience factor kind of over, uh, outweighs that. So, uh, we have a lot of studies that show that the, the more protein you get with your first meal in your day, the less you're gonna eat overall. And most people are in such a hurry, they don't have time for breakfast, they're not eating any protein for breakfast, they might just try to fast or just eat you know, a muffin or something. But uh, you know, if you had like 10 seconds to throw in a whey shake or something and get all of this protein front-loaded in your first meal, you are going to eat less the whole day. This is basically a proven fact. We have all of these studies where you just add a whey shake you know, before someone's meal, 
uh, and they literally just eat less calories downstream. So it's not optimal, but this is another easy hack for people who are in a hurry. And uh, so I don't mind whey powder or other uh, protein powders um, just as a time-saving device to get your protein percent higher. Um, egg whites, same story. You can just pour egg whites into like a scramble or something, and it's a pretty good way to add protein, increase your protein percentage without increasing energy or calories or carbs or fats. So those are other good things to throw in there. Pretty much anything out of the ocean is amazing. Shrimp, fish, shellfish. If it came out of the ocean, it's ridiculously good for its tidy per calorie. Period. Like there's basically no exceptions. Love anything coming out of the ocean. I love seafood. Um, okay, now I want to get to the controversial thing. It's not so controversial. It's just that people watching, I think a lot of the time, and that's carbohydrates, by the way. We're going to talk about carbohydrates. So I think that carbohydrates, as well as fat and protein, one macronutrients always demonized, you know, whether it be like this is good, that's bad, or something. Let's talk about the role of carbohydrates because you're not anti-anything. That's what I love about you. You're not anti-keto, anti-carnivore, anti-vegan or vegetarian. You're understanding the broader picture. What is the role of carbohydrates for your body, for weight loss and health? All right, so the reality is you have to have a certain amount of carbohydrate just to be alive because there are cells in your body that don't have mitochondria that are required to use glucose for fuel. This is your brain, your central nervous system, um, your red blood cells, certain cells in your kidneys. There are all these cell types that have to have glucose. That's why you die if your blood sugar hits zero. So everyone has to have glucose. You know, your average omnivore on a mixed diet needs about 70 grams of glucose a day. Um, you can shave that down if you're in extreme ketosis all the time. Maybe you only need 50 grams a day or something like that. But you know, let's say you need you know 70 grams of glucose a day just to be alive. It is possible to manufacture that out of protein and you can manufacture a little bit out of the glycogen. Um, well, if you, if you look at a triglyceride, which is the way fat is packaged, right? You've got a glycerol backbone and then three fatty acid chains and the glycerol you can use to make glucose out of. So about 5% of your fat calories you can use to make glucose out of, which kind of helps you stay alive on a zero carb diet. But you still have to make some extra glucose out of protein. So now you're wasting some protein just to make enough glucose to be alive. Is that optimal? I probably not. So you can, you can do it. It's possible, but it's not optimal. Is it optimal to eat absolutely no carbohydrate and just stay alive because you're burning, you're using some of your protein to make enough glucose to be alive. That is certainly possible, probably not optimal. It would be more optimal to eat a little bit of carbohydrate every day. And that is probably better because you're sparing, that it would be protein sparing at that point. You're sparing protein for its other you know, anabolic purposes. Um, now let's talk about high intensity exercise. At low intensity movements is, purely driven by just burning fat. It was, when you're doing low intensity stuff, you're just burning fat. But as you uh, reach you know, higher and higher heart rates, as your heart rate goes up, you know, you hit 70% maximum heart rate, 80% maximum heart rate. Now you're burning almost pure glucose. Anything zone five, if you're getting, you know, 80, 90% of your maximum output in your VO2 max and your heart rate, you're burning pure glucose. When you're doing your really high intensity training, you're burning pure glucose, maybe even up to you know a couple of grams a minute. And this is 
glucose that on a zero carb diet, you have to manufacture the hard way out of protein. So if you're doing a lot of glycolytic exercise, it's high intensity exercise, and trying to make enough glucose to stay alive, and you're doing it on a zero carb diet, this is for sure not optimal. I don't care what anyone says, it's possible, but it will not be optimal. It is not optimal to do large volumes of glycolytic high intensity exercise on a zero carbohydrate diet. That you, that's why all these studies in sports show higher performance when your people are eating a bunch of carbs. And that's why all your, you know, your pro soccer players who are playing for hours are going to be drinking the absolute hell out of beverages with multiple forms of sugars in there so they can get as much carbohydrate into their body as fast as possible. And you're drinking your Gatorade that intentionally is gonna have fructose, uh, you know, glucose, multiple, uh, basically, you know, multiple forms of sugars in there for rapid absorption and repletion. Uh, you want carbohydrate for high intensity exercise. And also carbohydrate has a little bit of an ergogenic effect for some people. So they'll have a harder workout, a better workout, a stronger workout, if they have some glycogen in their muscles, right? We do exercise studies on people who are glycogen depleted. They're living on a low carb diet or they do a glycogen depletion workout. So they're just, all the carbs are out of their muscles. You will not get as good high end performance, glycolytic performance as you will on carbohydrates. So carbohydrates, I think have a role, not only eating some just to be alive, to spare protein, so you don't have to use your protein to make glucose, but also to do any kind of high performance stuff. So for most people, I'm like, okay, probably eat you know, 100 grams of carbs a day. You, you're basically able to have enough glucose to be alive without having to use protein. And then you're also able to do, you know, maybe half an hour of high intensity exercise every day. I also recommend people add on more carbohydrate if they're doing large volumes of glycolytic exercise, you know, maybe a gram per minute uh, for the high intensity exercise you're doing. So typically I'm eating about a gram per pound of body weight and carbohydrate a day. So I might you know, eat 150 grams or something of carbs a day. That's half of what most people eat, um, but it's not zero. So it's like somewhere in between. It's kind of nuanced. It's a little, I, I think that when you get to the extremes, it's possible, but it's not optimal. And optimal is probably gonna be a little bit more closer to the middle. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that answered your question, but that's where I'm at. No, it answered the question, but see, when I ask these questions, I always think about the viewer watching and I get a lot of comments in my YouTube, on my carnival group around people that find the carnival diet, it's because they're metabolically broken. And you would know this, of course, you see patients, you know, you know all of this. So when you say to somebody that's metabolically broken, that, you know, has diabetes or insulin resistance, is severely overweight, needs to lose 50 pounds, 100 pounds, you know, wants to lose a lot of weight, and you tell them to eat carbs, is that going to work to achieve metabolic health and metabolic flexibility? Yes, yes. And what and people just don't understand. People don't get it. So I have patients who are, you know, 400 pounds, 500 pounds. I have extreme uncontrolled diabetes. Your people whose blood sugars are, you know, 400, 500, 600, your A1Cs, 10, 12, 14, over 14, which is all the lab reports now. Um, I see unbelievable extremes. 
And what people don't realize is if you are a dangerously energy toxic, over fat, type two diabetic where you've long ago maxed out your personal fat threshold, you have every fuel in your body is way, way, way too high. Your free fatty acids, your triglycerides, your glucose, um, you're just actively getting diabetic complications. Uh, you're, you've just completely redlined your whole metabolism with energy toxicity, which is what insulin resistance and type 2 diabetes is. If you take that person and they eat a refined carb, their blood sugar immediately goes way higher and uh, it takes hours to come back down. That's terrible and they don't want to eat refined carbs. What, what people don't understand is if you eat the same amount of calories in fat in that scenario, you won't see that immediate rise, but 12 hours later, their blood sugar is just as high and the area under the curve is just as dramatic. Well, actually, that's not true. The blood sugar is not just as high, but if you looked at the area under the curve, so you eat the carbs, you get this big spike, comes back down. You eat fat, you see nothing under your glucometer for hours, but then the next morning you wake up and your blood sugar is significantly higher than usual. And if you look at the area under the curve for energy toxicity, those two are absolutely identical. There's literally no difference. And that's why it's calories and not just, oh, just carbs or just fat. Like Professor Roy Taylor, when he did all these studies where people shrunk down all their liver fat and had all these radical improvements, these diets were very low protein. It was like 50 grams of protein a day, um, 125 grams of carbs, and then like 10 grams of fat. They were really just like starvation diets that were super low in fat, but had way more carbs than any carnivore ever eats. Like it was literally 120 grams of sugar, I believe. And, but the, cal the overall calories were like 800 or 900, something like that. And uh, you know, it's just reducing the calories, the area under the curve, the liver fat all gets burned up, your diabetes is gone, you're totally fine. Any diet that allows you to eat fewer calories will have equal metabolic health improvements. That's why you have these huge studies like the diet fit study where uh, low carb group, low fat group, at the end of the study, they both have the exact same hemoglobin A1C, same weight loss, same A1C, doesn't matter. Everyone gets really confused by their glucometer. They're like, diabetes is a disease of high sugar. It's carb intolerance. I eat carbs, my sugar goes up. Look at that, I mean, that, that has to be it. Uh, oh, except if you really look at the area under the curve for 24 hours, eating those same calories from butter will give you just as much glycemic perturbance as the carbohydrate did. It's just so subtle and gradual and slow because it takes so long for fat to be absorbed into the bloodstream. It, it's packaged as chylomicrons, it travels through the thoracic duct and lymphatic system. It's not the same as glucose. So it's packaged and stored and hits your system in a completely different way because it's not water soluble. And nobody understands that. People are like, honestly, just like kind of clueless. And they're like, oh yeah, well, it's, you can eat carbs because you're thin and you're metabolically healthy. Uh, no, um, they're isocaloric, interchangeable and you just don't realize that the big water-soluble carbohydrate glucose spike on your glucometer and the very slow, subtle rise the next morning are actually isocalorically identical and you just don't get it because there's such a difference between how carbs and fats are, 
are packaged. So it's completely mythical that, oh, well, if you're thin and you're metabolically healthy, you can eat carbs. But I'm super fat and diabetic, so I can't eat any carbs. I can just eat this stick of butter, right? That is absolutely wrong. It's two extremes. It's the extremes of really high carb and really high highly processed foods. And then like, let me just put a stick of butter on my steak and I'm going to lose weight. So that's why, you know, what you're saying is so perfect in terms of understanding the concept. You want nutrient density. You can't think that you're going to overeat calories and you're going to lose weight. It doesn't work like that. Calories or energy or whatever you want to call it. Would you agree with that? Uh, absolutely right. And uh, big picture, every single person on earth is just eating to satiety. Every, you know, all day, every day, every meal, all the time. You could white knuckle it and try to just cut your calories in half for a couple of days. It's gonna not gonna work long-term. So basically, in the long-term, everyone's just eating to satiety. And the question is, how many calories did you eat when you ate to satiety? And that is why satiety per calorie is the single most important dietary metric of all. And that's why I'm so focused on it now, instead of necessarily just anything in isolation, like just carbohydrate percentage or just fat percentage, or even just protein percentage, even though that's my bias and my favorite, um, it still doesn't explain everything we see out there. Um, like, you know, the Samane who are all super thin on a 12% protein diet, but it's because they eat you know, most of their calories from this wild sweet potato, which has a super high fiber percentage and super low energy density and pretty good nutritional spectrum. And last question for you, what do you think about people that come to carnival? Because this is one of the reasons why I came to carnival was to improve my gut health because I eat, let's just say vegetables or even, you know, lots of fruit or anything. I get so bloated. So I just find that when I eat animal-based foods, uh, include some, even dairy, I get bloated. I'm just very ultra sensitive to everything. Right, now I think that is an excellent point. So all of your, um, I don't know if people are familiar with FODMAPs. FODMAP is fermentable oligosaccharide, monosaccharide, disaccharide, and polyol. These are basically short chain carbs that ferment in your gut. And anytime you eat something and you know, an hour later you feel bloated and gassy, you have abdominal distension, um, this is always fermentation in your intestines which is almost exclusively carbs and plant food carbs. And so there's this huge list of things that um, trigger, well, I shouldn't say just plant foods because lactose is actually the number one FODMAP intolerance on the planet. So I can't just say plants, I guess. But it's these carbohydrates and, that are fermenting. And a lot of people, when they just radically slash their carb intake, they have so much less fermentation. It's just an instant win. So I love carnivore for that reason. Also, we have studies showing that if you have something going on with your colon, if you have diverticulitis, ulcerative colitis, inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's, the more fiber you eat, especially insoluble fiber, the worse that is for symptoms. And so you really don't want to eat a whole, you don't want to eat 18 pounds of carrots when you have diverticulitis or inflammatory bowel disease. You wanna be a more on the carnivore side. So I absolutely love dialing that plant food up and down if you're having GI stuff. I think most people, that's why your you know, optimal GI elimination diet is just you know, ribeyes and water because you're really getting rid of a lot of this insoluble fiber and 
FODMAPs. And so I think that's a very important point, and that is a really solid application for a more religiously carnivore approach. So I do love that for an elimination diet for these kinds of GI symptoms. And then I do encourage people to retreat to a, you know your ribeye and water elimination diet and then just gently add in things to see how you do. And to be perfectly honest, fruit is probably the best tolerated plant category, in my opinion. If you're going to add a plant food into a pure carnivore diet, I think fruit is the best way to start. And even, uh, even some of your vegetables that are botanically fruit, I think are great, like cucumbers and melon and pumpkin and um, peppers and all these tomatoes and things that you think are vegetables are really botanically fruit. And these are the way to go when you're trying to add something into a carnivore diet and you're watching out for these GI things in my opinion. But yeah, so I, I, I like that you pointed that out and I'm in full agreement with you. Good. Because, <laughs> you know, when you like talk about diets, it's like a religion. So you want to talk to somebody and then you have your point of view and then you're a doctor and you have your point of view. And it's like, we're kind of saying the same thing, but we come from different backgrounds. And right now, this is working for me right now. Because you've done the paleo, you've done the keto, you've done maybe a bit of carnivore. And you have arrived to where you are today through learning what works for you and with your patients. So it's not to say that carnivore doesn't work or anyone's anti-carnivore. There's a place for carnivore. There's a place for different ways of eating based on what is needed for you. So I hope that our conversation with Dr. Naaman has helped people out there understand what foods you need to be eating, satiety per calorie for weight loss. And then also the place for carnivore. It's great for gut health. Does every person need to be on carnivore? Probably not. But I just want to say thank you so much for your time. Where can people find you? Oh, right. Yeah, so I'm on the social media at Ted Naaman, uh, Twitter at Ted Naaman, Instagram at Ted Naaman. Um, and I wrote this book, The PE Diet, which you can find uh, pretty much anywhere books are sold online or at... Uh, tednam.com or thepediet.com or just Google it or something like that. I will leave the link in the description for everyone. But thank you so much for your time and I'm sure we're going to see you very soon. You might also like to watch this video by Dr. Ken Berry discussing the ultimate beginner guide to start a carnivore diet. I'll see you guys next week.